Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there, this is Cecilia, Webby Awards brand producer. Are you making great work on the internet? If so, I wanted to take this moment to let you know that we have extended the 27th annual Webby Awards deadline to Friday, February 10th. This season, we are proud to have launched a whole new set of honors for responsible technology with categories like accessible technology, responsible information, and sustainable technology. If you're doing this work, participate in the Webby's first year recognizing responsible technology to set new standards and inspire others. Head to webbyawards.com to find out more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Wow. Much. Grateful. Very. Thanks. Ooh. We, we fight, fight for kids' rights. Let's end this vicious cycle. This is only the beginning. Hey there, and welcome back. Today we welcome our special guest, Emma Lemke, founder of the Global Log Off Movement. After noticing the harmful impact of social media on her own mental health, Emma realized it was time to unplug. She began researching if others had similar experiences, and to her surprise, they did. She found several studies reporting that unregulated social media use could lead to increased troubles with mental health and self-image. This pushed her to start the Log Off Movement in June of 2020. The movement encourages young users to redefine their relationship with social media and to set healthy boundaries. We sat down with Emma to learn more about the movement and what she has learned about social media through her work with Log Off. Before we get started, we want to provide a content warning. This conversation might include mentions of social media addiction, anxiety, depression, and even suicide. If you're not in the headspace to engage with these topics at the moment, that's okay. We want to encourage you to take some time for yourself before you continue to listen. All right. We start off talking to Emma about her own experiences and how that led her to realize it was time to unplug. I remember I heard a buzz of my phone in the other room and I had that Pelovian response to grab for it. Um, and I remember finally asking, like, what am I doing? How is something like social media, like Instagram, um, how does it have so much control over my life and why am I allowing that to happen? Um, and it was the first time that I really stepped back. And from there, I just started researching. Um, I looked up everything from, you know, is social media corroding my mental health? Like, what are the features that lead to that corrosion to, you know, what just is an algorithm? What is it? And all of that got me to a place where I felt like I understood that there was a correlation between this huge mental health crisis, um, democratic crisis, and social media and its excessive usage within my population and my generation, Gen Z. But what I couldn't find, and that really troubled me, was the voice of Gen Z itself. Um, throughout all these studies, throughout all these organizations, young people were not given the platform or the space to describe their experiences, to talk about how they've interacted with social media, being the generation of digital natives, being the first generation to grow up with social media, really baked into, um, I always say baked into the DNA of our generation, but also just really um, framing our childhood experiences. Those stories that could easily help tailor a new responsible tech environment were not being told. Therefore, we were not gaining and extrapolating the richness that was within these experiences. Um, so I decided to take that experience and to catapult me towards, you know, developing out a space for young people to tell their stories, to then be able to gain from that richness and to move forward in a healthier direction. So tell me a little bit about your your early experience and like how you sort of, so you described a, you know, when you first started using Sort of social media apps like a sort of really rich and kind of connected experience like something that was exciting you know what happened there where what was the change that went from there to it sounds like over the course of many years ultimately having sort of like a really negative experience with it and like and what was you know what was negative about it you know was it 
did you recognize during those six hours all the time that you couldn't stop? Or was it, is it just that you sort of felt like you didn't feel good after using it? Tell me more about that. To this day, one of my favorite experiences in the online world was in like the first week of getting Instagram. I followed every celebrity, every fast food chain, including Olive Garden. I just thought it was the coolest thing that I could connect with these corporations and people that I really aspired to be like, or I really enjoyed. So I followed Olive Garden and I commented on one of their posts, like at Olive Garden, I love you. And they commented back at Emma, we love you too. And I had the best day of my life. I was so ecstatic and happy. And like that to me is a really, really representative story of why I liked it in the beginning. It allowed me to feel like I was directly connecting with these larger entities that had already had a force or impact in my life but it was so transient so you know that allure that dopamine rush of getting that comment only lasted so long and you know eventually after having followed all these celebrities like kim kardashian having followed all of these food accounts down the line what that meant is i was being fed through this kind of like gambling slot machine um endless scroll Kim Kardashian's edited photos of her unrealistic body. So I began to feel as though I had to conform myself and reshape my own expectations to reach that standard. So that was what I was seeing. And because I was seeing Kim Kardashian, the algorithm thought I needed more and more images of young women, incredibly skinny, things like that, um, began to really mold and shape my feed. So over many years, I was endlessly scrolling because of these addictive techniques that are put into place within these algorithms um, and within these big tech companies um, that is like, it's a direct result of wanting to really just capture as much attention as possible. Um, So as I was scrolling mindlessly and just consistently looking for a dopamine hit throughout my endless scroll, uh, whether in the form of a comment, whether it's in the form of a new video that I liked, I just kept getting these harmful pieces of material. So even if I found a golden nugget within like a hundred posts, one kind of meme that made me laugh, I still had to deal with the effect of having 99 other pieces of information that made me more anxious as a young woman, Mm. that made me feel worse body, or that made me feel in some way like I was negatively um, impacted by the information I received. And then the kind of flip side of that too is that when I exited these apps, I felt terrible. I said, how is it that I am spending this much time? Like I just wasted five hours that I could have been with my family. I could have been with my friends. And it was a really, really harmful judgmental place that I put myself in. And I think that a lot of other young people that I've spoken with um, really echo is that we felt hopeless and we felt like we were the reason that we were addicted. And I think that was one of the major shifts for me is when I reached for my phone and I had that moment of realization, I took a step back and disassociated and said, no, this is not the fault of the individual. This wasn't my fault that I was scrolling mindlessly. It was the fault of the tech developers and the people at Instagram and Facebook and TikTok that employed these addictive techniques that kept me on and kept feeding me harmful material. You spend all this time on, on say, Instagram, and then then you'd be mad at yourself about it later. Mm-hmm. So you were having sort of like all this negative experience, getting all this negative imagery and giving anxiety and all this stuff. Then you get off, and then you'd be mad at yourself for having wasted all your time doing that. So so it's another loop. Were you finding yourself, like, were you starting to have a hard time also, like, focusing on, on people and, and having a, a healthy time away from the phone? Yeah. To, to answer your question, I became what I was so angered by in my friend group. Um, And I think that as someone, as a young kid who was incredibly creative and loud and social, um, always wanted to be like running and playing, you know, I felt like I was robbed of my ability to be bored and to have those moments Mm. because no longer when I was bored or when I didn't know what to do, did I have the kind of time and space to create or invent something new or to just play around and interact with the world? Instead, I had this ready to go device and application that would hit me with a few dopamine rushes that would give me likes and comments that would allow me to seemingly connect um, with so many people around me. Um, So it kind of made 
my decision easy to say when I'm bored, I will turn to these apps. When I don't know what to do and I'm kind of anxious or awkward in a social um, situation, I'm going to turn to this app, um, which is exactly what, what all my friends were doing. Um, and again, it, it is just, it was sad that what I feared the most and what I was confused by the most eventually became my reality. Um, and I think that for a lot of parents, that was the really precarious situation that they found themselves in, was seeing their child, and I've talked with a lot of parents, you know, witnessing their child go from this very rambunctious, loud, um, social kind of creature on this earth to one that is just really sucked into an online world without agency and also semi-unaware of where they are and what kind of influence these apps are having on them. Yeah. And and so were you having a conversation with your parents during this time as well? And like what, what I'm, I'm sure since then you probably had a lot of conversation with them, but what was that like? You know, I... I haven't really, um, at least I'll say in the past year, it has, with all my social media advocacy work, I've had many more sit downs. Um, but while this was happening, no, um, I'm one of three children. Both of my older siblings had had social media prior to me. They, I think, you know, after talking with them years later, they echoed that they had similar feelings. They were more anxious. They felt, you know, that it didn't necessarily increase their mental well-being. But also, I did have I have one older sister who loves TikTok and she loves scrolling. And she said that she has not really experienced the harms that I felt. So I think my parents went into me social media, um, like how they really approached it with my other siblings, where they weren't necessarily that harmed. It wasn't that apparent. And therefore, they felt like we would regulate our own time um, and they would kind of put into place some very unhelpful um, parameters, such as, you know, put your phone outside of the bedroom at night, which no one in my family um, stuck by. Or if we're at the dinner table, try not to be on your phone, which no one at my family really stuck by. Um, So down the line, I think we had more conversations about this as I began to explore and research and I began to talk with them about my findings and, you know, all these amazing stories that I've heard while being in the space, but it really was a slow progression. Um, And I also think that that's partially because a lot of conversations in the family unit have been, there's a great stigma around having these conversations because they've been approached in such a negative judgmental um, way. And that's one thing that I've really worked to emphasize within log off is just the need to approach conversations about tech usage with members of different generations from a place of curiosity and love and care and learning rather than one of confusion and anger um and one that's just very fueled by emotions and fright because i think a lot of parents are truly afraid of what social media is doing to their children but they don't seek to ask why are our kids going on social media in the first place so tell me so you had this sort of revelatory moment where you you sort of saw yourself in the mirror how did you a bit so what i mean that's great but in any type of addiction, once you have that moment, that's really important. But then also making change after that moment is, is, is not just, you know, you don't just like roll the carpet out and walk down the path. It's, it's still hard. How did you do that? For me, was as simple as really deleting my social media accounts. And I always say, you know, quitting cold turkey initially was what I needed. But for a lot of other people, that isn't possible. Um, I think it also made it easier for me that I was going through um, a difficult course at that time. So I said, you know what, the time that I'll spend that I would have spent scrolling, I really need to spend studying Um, that decision. I kind of had to reframe it in my mind, how I was going to use my time effectively. But I will fully admit, you know, after those two months, the integration period was really difficult um, because it felt Mm. like, you know, giving myself a cigarette after not having smoked and been, you know, addicted for years. Um, So at that point, I really had to make a conscious decision to what I say, place levels of friction between me and addictive technologies that allowed a lot of the pressure to be taken off my shoulders so that I wasn't actively having to feel like I was have the watching my screen time and making sure that I was gaining or losing from each interaction. Um, so for instance, I downloaded Stanford habit lab, um, which is just a really helpful, um, 
software that if you you can put on your computer that tracks your screen time it feeds you a ton of randomized interventions such as you know buffering your time um on twitter which is it seems so small but i i guarantee you you know it it is terrible trying to go onto a social media platform and then it not working for like 10 seconds um so i downloaded things like that that would kind of randomize interventions um and then i also just went through when I got back and did this thing I call like the five minute scroll. So I scrolled through my phone and I said, okay, each picture I'm going to stop and ask myself some really basic questions. Like, why am I following this person? What is this image? Do I care about this image? How do I feel after viewing this image? And do I want to continue following this person? Is this content worth it to me? And sadly, as I did that coming back from that long period of being away, most of my feed was something that I didn't care about. Most of the feed Mm. was me following an individual because I felt like I had to. It was me following an individual because I thought that I would benefit or from that follow request or from that additional kind of um, interaction. But what I really realized that when I stepped back and was agent in my endless scroll, the information that I was receiving was not why I came to social media. So now my feed, which I'm still on social media, um, my feed is tailored to things that I want to see. So when I go on Instagram, when I go on Snapchat, when I go on Twitter, I'm looking at, ironically, it's a lot of, you know, tech advocacy sites. So understanding what they're doing, understanding their programming. And it's a ton of body positivity accounts kind of, um, reversing or attempting to reverse the harm that I felt by looking at really harmful um, pieces of media geared towards young women. So it was a very conscious decision I had to make and one that I think is really, really tailored to the individual. Um, And that's what makes it so difficult to provide a effective intervention and an effective kind of um, buffer between people and their addictive technologies is because each person interacts in such a different way. I mean, I think what you're describing is a, a real intentionality to the time you spend at the end of the day, right? It's really taking some, some, some real ownership of what you're doing and what you're looking at and what, what you're spending your time with and, um, and, and making sure it's good for you. It's kind of interesting is that, you know, I think on any platform, you know, it's one of the things that happens is that they try and get you started really quickly hey, follow these things and check this out and you just kind of get going on it. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a discovery phase. It's exploratory. That's interesting. So that's kind of cool. But um, it doesn't really, once you've sort of made those choices, there's not like a presentation again where like, hey, do you want to keep following this or whatever? It's sort of like, you know, and I think we all have the thing that we were interested in seven years ago that we're still getting, that's still in our feed because it was interesting then. And for some reason, we just haven't been intentional enough about like unsubscribing to it but it sounds like what you're describing is really like just being super intentional about what you're looking at exactly and i think that's why a lot of my work in this space is beginning to shift towards mindfulness so looking Mm -hmm. at the role of of increasing mindfulness mindfulness practices and how that can then hopefully in turn allow for people to be more intentional because i I think one of the biggest issues with preaching intentionality is one, it's incredibly difficult. And two, because of social media, because of our information environment, because of the way that we live now, um, specifically in America too, what I, how I've interacted with the world is very fast. Um, and it does not really allow for slow living and intentional living. So I think that my generation really has to be one that steps back and asks, you know, are we really being the most efficient when we're living at this accelerated pace, when we're consuming mm. so much material at this rate? Or will we produce more and be better and be healthier if we're intentional and we take a few more milliseconds or beats before making decisions and before really acting upon impulses? I think that that shift is going to be, and that movement, that intentionality movement is, is going to be one that my generation needs to spearhead and one that I'm incredibly excited to see evolve over the next few years. So this experience that you had, ultimately it led you into, you know, what some people would call like tech advocacy or responsible technology advocacy. Um, you started something called the log off movement. Tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, I think I, I get, I understand the 
social media experience you had to get there, but tell me a little bit about the experience of, of putting that together and, and what that is. Absolutely. So when I had that revelation in ninth grade, it perfectly coincided with a leadership incubator that I was a part of. Um, it was called the Myrie Ethical Leadership Center in Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from. Um, and it posed a question, just how can you take one of your passions to produce a project or something that will benefit your community? And I remember thinking that is the most broad, ambiguous question. How on earth am I going to come up with something to tackle that? And then I had this huge revolution. I had this huge moment and um, I realized that my project needed to be something geared towards social media. Um, so that's when I kind of I took a, a deep dive into a lot of research. And again, what I found through my experience over the past, like it was three years of looking at material was just that the young people weren't being given the platform to voice their experiences and stories. And we weren't really able to talk to one another. Most of these conversations were being dominated by experts in the space. They were being dominated by these, these leading um, thought leaders. Um, and, and again, that's wonderful and great but it wasn't allowing for the experts in the field gen z to have their moment to really assist in the creation of a responsible tech world so with all that information i just said okay idea for my project there has to be some community or touch point between members of gen z and younger generations where we can have these conversations we can get together and we can cross pollinate ways where we can use these stories of harm and these stories of how we've benefited from tech to then create advocacy efforts whether that be um through you know tabling at a university or a school to have more people um download like a habit lab or something that helps you know add a level of friction um, or if that's just having a conversation so that the conversation as a whole can begin to be destigmatized so more people can engage. Um, or if it just might be a safe place for young people to come together to talk about the difficulties of living in the online world. So for so much of our, our childhoods and our lives thus far. So I decided log off was a great title. It was catchy. It was a hook. Um, to pull people into this conversation. So I, I launched in 2020 during the heart of the pandemic with just that idea to be a community incubator and to really be a movement dedicated to rethinking social media by teens for teens. And once we launched, we began to develop out a character ed program. Um, we began to expand our team. So looking at how can we add a greater diversity of perspectives and voices into this mix. Um, at the peak of our teen leadership council, we had about seven, 60 members from like 13 different countries. Um, and then we began to expand upon um, written resources and stories. So expanding our blog, expanding our podcast. Um, and we really got to a point in the past, in the last year, where we have been able to step back and say, okay, a lot of people want to have this conversation. And if we've learned anything, it's that young people are ready to lead the fight. How can we provide the resources and the experiences and all um, of the things that are necessary for them to effectively make that change and to be those thought leaders? So Log Off is really shifting in a direction in the next year to develop out chapter programming so that high school students and college students can lead Log Off chapters at their university um, to help in this push to have these conversations, to advocate for change, and to really tailor their approach to the community that they're in to be most effective and to have the best impact possible. You, you touched on the character education curriculum. Tell me about that. So that was something that was really near and dear to my heart in the beginning of um, log offs kind of and in, in the idea for log off. I thought, you know, where we're going to see the most effective uh, change or intervention is going to be by teaching young kids and the next generation how to effectively create tech habits. What are they entering into? And basically just raising the consciousness um, of the next generation. Um, and I thought, you know, the best place for that to happen is in a classroom um, and with teachers. And I was, <laughs> I was a student in a classroom in elementary school where they attempted to have that conversation. And I just remember how ineffective it was because it was a character ed kind of curriculum that was developed out by another generation 
attempting to understand the needs, the wants, the wishes, the desires of a completely different group of individuals, a group of digital natives. So that then developed out and created the idea of producing a character ed or something that the younger generation Gen Z wished that they had been given. Um, so that was kind of the, the prompt that I gave to a group of our team leadership members and they ran with it and they got together in a ton of meetings over about a six month period to develop out this curriculum that could be taught in schools, a one-time kind of um, interaction with teachers and students that would allow for these conversations to enter the classroom and to enter the, the minds of these young people. Um, and although that kind of programming um, has stopped for us right now, we are pivoting to be able to continue to work in the educational space with the help of teachers um, by piloting and running these kind of school chapters so that it's not just a one-off conversation that you retain and regurgitate and then just really move on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From and what what are some of the what are some of the recommendations and some of the tactics and techniques that you're that the curriculum the curriculum is advocating? Like what are what are you trying to get across? Either you know from a, I think from a high level, I I understand it's probably a, being more informed about the impact that social media can probably have on you. And but like so you know, get more specific. So it's really broken down into the different categories um, that are taught in the classroom and that um, most students or young people that interact with the online world will eventually deal with, such as like cyberbullying, um, harms to your mental health, um, privacy concerns. So we wanted to make kind of a digestible intro for students um, into these conversations. But one of the, our biggest really criticisms of current um, curriculums that are taught is that they're, they're not interactive. You are basically being preached at um, by a member of a different generation. It feels like you can't really project your own experiences and stories upon um, the topics that they're talking about. So it, it's hard to really empathize with. And it's really hard to um, take that knowledge that's being fed to you and insert it into your daily life. Um, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to allow for students to connect with the material through more interactive activities. So for each topic there is an interactive activity. So you're stepping back, it gives the teacher time to breathe and it gives the experts in the room, ironically the students, time to really work with one another, discuss how they really interact with these different topics and subjects. And then from there be able to discuss via other members of their generation, how they can improve their environment going forward and how they can build better habits. Um, you also work with Technically Politics, which advocates for legislative regulation to push social media platforms uh, to prioritize users' well-being over profit. First question is, did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. Um, and then, you know, tell us a bit about that. Tell us about your work there. Why was it important that you, I know you talked a little bit about using testimonials and that was something. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, why is it important that uh, testimonials that people that young people can share directly that information and what have you learned about their experiences by by having that information great question um te so technically politics stepping back was a passion project that was created um via my brain and then my my closest friend eliza copens who is a student at brown university right now in her second year too um and 
being in the space for about a year, um, it was 2020, uh, we met randomly at a youth digital activist forum. And in that conversation, we randomly just paired up with one another and said, we're, we're frustrated. We feel hopeless um, because there's only so much that the individual can do to regulate their time on social media. Um, at a certain point, it is on the government, it is on our democratic process to step in and to assist in protecting the mental well-being, the physical well-being, and the privacy and safety of young people. So with that kind of charge, we both decided that we wanted to provide a forum and we wanted to provide a space to collect those stories of young people, to go out into our, our both of our campuses and to connect with people we know um, so that legislators can be more and better informed on the needs of their constituents. Because we both also in our conversation talked about the irony that so many of the people that have the ability to make these changes are a part of a generation that really can't comprehend the needs um, and the desires of a digital, a digitally aware and conscious generation. So we wanted to bridge that information gap, bridge that generational gap via the provision of kind of a story bank. Um, because, you know, I think we, we found that there's the most impact and power when you hear it from the individual themselves. Because um, we can stand up there and say that we are, you know, representatives of our generation, but I think that would be doing a disservice to so many different voices and perspectives. Hmm. Um, and what yeah. I gained personally yeah. from, you know, listening to these stories was just honestly a sense that I wasn't alone. Um, I think even being in the space, you don't get to hear that many people openly call for action based off of experiences and stories um and just based off of our the prompts we provided um we really wanted to to get people to engage in this conversation and they engaged so willingly and so personally that it it moved me to do more work for instance i remember listening to a story that eliza had recorded on brown's campus um, of a young girl who just said she was horrified by the fact that her younger sister who was like three or four years old was able to circumnavigate the like age restriction and the time restriction to be able to keep scrolling um but then the other thing that it left me with was this profound sense of hope because in listening to these stories we prompted a lot of individuals to say what do you want to see change and a lot of the ideas were so creative they were incredibly diverse, ranging from, you know, I want to see a tag that shows me that a photo has been edited to different algorithmic scrolling techniques. You know, it just made me incredibly hopeful that I was a part of a generation that is capable of tackling this issue. It might take a few years for us to kind of, you know, develop ourselves to get out of college, to kind of enter into our careers. But I truly think that I am within the generation that will solve this issue or at least begin to competently tackle ways to create a responsible tech future that other generations have not been capable of because of the fact they are not digital natives. I know you, you all work and advocate around tech uh, regulation. Um, you know, do you think that's, is that sort of like the only and most important way to promote the use of social media, promote better responsible use on the platform side? Or do you think there's, there's other, other ways to go about that? Yes and no. So I think in zooming out, there are three different approaches um, that can be taken to really work at this issue and to work to solve it. One, I think there is the bottom up approach. So it's saying, yes, individuals need to work to be kind of become more intentional, to gain digital consciousness, better understand the platforms that they're entering into, um, and develop better tech habits. So that would be, again, me like deciding to delete social media for a second and then come back in with these new softwares to help me with my screen time usage. But my biggest issue with that is that puts an enormous, places an enormous burden on the user um, to navigate a technology that is working against them. Then I turn to the top um, top down processing and I say, yes, the government needs to step in because at a certain point, the Facebooks of the world, you know, the TikToks of the world, the ins and I say 
and the Instagrams, metas of the world, they will continue to produce addictive technologies. They will continue to perpetuate these issues if it gives, if it gains, um, if it allows them to gain money. Because um, that is just the surveillance um, economy that we find ourselves in. And I think that unless there is governmental oversight and unless they are forced to reconsider their um, approaches to innovating and their approaches to designing technology, that incentive isn't there. Therefore, they will be losing money. Therefore, it's not worth their time. And I think you can kind of see that um, at least looking at, you know, the age appropriate design code in California that just got passed that we we helped lobby for through log off and uh, design it for us campaign um, of youth activists. Um, it was modeled after a piece of legislation in the UK, where once it was passed, it's just kind of a piece of legislation that says um, tech has to be de designed with young people in mind. Um, it's kind of forcing that reprioritization of youth well-being over profit. Um, when that was passed in the UK, one substantial change that was was kind of produced was setting a limit. At a certain point in the night, TikTok or like a social media platform, I believe it was TikTok, wouldn't send you notifications. So that might seem like a really trivial change, such as stopping auto scroll. But what it means is it's shutting down an addictive technique that pulls you in. And it's forcing the hand of tech companies to just innovate in a more creative direction. Um, so I think that, yes, you do have to place that kind of governmental burden or that regulatory um, kind of precedent so that you do force tech companies to reprioritize, you know, well-being and innovation over profit. Um, but again, I, I also do think that social forces are going to be the major driving force for any governmental action. Just to go back to the bottom-up approach there, um, the sort of the action that individuals can take. So, you know, you described a, you know, sort of like an a, addiction-type behavior, and that that's, you know, that exists. And then there's there's probably some big middle where there's people who maybe use it more than they want to, and they feel somewhat addicted to it, but, you know, that maybe it's not, it's not quite so severe, and they also need to use social media for work and there's some parts of it that they really like. Do you have any advice for, for that sort of, that kind of behavior path where, you know, people would like to be more intentional about it, but they also, it is part of the, are their lives and it is part of sort of a lot of the things that they have to do like work and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, going cold Turkey is maybe not really a, a big option, a good option there. Like what, what do you recommend? You know, that is a wonderful it's a wonderful question and a wonderful point that I want to touch upon um, is a lot of individuals really don't have these like horrific negative experiences, like you said, but any negative experience is worth noting and is worth assisting um, towards better screen time usage. And again, a lot of people I've interacted with, whether it's within my individual circle, um, people that have come to log off have echoed that sentiment and that feeling that I am upset I don't want to be spending that much time on this device. But like you said, I have a school club and I run their Instagram or I don't want to be fully disconnected from my sister. That's how I felt um, coming into college and having decided I was going to keep social media was I didn't want to be disconnected from all of my friends at many different universities that I knew I would not have the time to speak to every single day. So what I really honed in upon in talking to those individuals and creating my own better tech habits was just the intentional decision behind when and where I would use social media. Um, so kind of mm. creating for myself a, a kind of like um, regulatory pattern that would become habit. Um, for instance, when I have a major exam or when I have um, a major event in my life that requires more time, I delete the apps from my phone but they will be re-downloaded when I finish them. For instance, I allow myself to scroll through Instagram and Twitter and um, these platforms that I love at certain points in the day, but not during certain windows. Um, so I think in answering your question, for those individuals that feel like they can't fully unplug, they can't fully take a cold turkey approach, which I am not um, a strong believer in because I don't think it, it solves the issue in the long run, um, just 
being more intentional about boundaries is a very, very instrumental kind of decision and path that you can take in building long-term habits that will last. Um, and then also just consistently checking in. Um, I have to do my five-minute scroll at least once every two months saying, who have I followed in the past mm. two months? Do I really want them on my account? Do I want to see them? Um, and just checking in with myself. Um, I think a lot of people think it is it is a one-off approach where you know you download a software habit lab and you're good or you create those boundaries in those spaces and you're good but in reality it is a decision to be more intentional with your screen time that lasts a lifetime to be completely honest mm. um where you really do need to make the decision that you will be more intentional and continue on that path in a regulatory um habitual manner um and i again i i just want to emphasize that individuals that come to log off don't have to have those like horrible stories um, as we wrap up tell me what are some of the initiatives you're working on now for either log off or for technically politics entering 2023 um it's such a set like exciting time i've been working really closely with two of um my most um trusted and long-term um team leadership members um Emmy and Clara, and they are going to help build out the strategic vision for log off. And what that strategic vision so far has included is really building out our chapter programming. Um, a lot of people that have come to us have mentioned that they want to be able to start these individual community efforts, but they want the assistance. They don't know where to begin. And we really want to be that touch point and that kind of launch pad for a lot of other youth activists. Because again, we need to see action and to be able to see action we need collective movement um so we want to be able to help incubate and empower a lot of other youth leaders across the country and the world to be able to have these conversations where they are um, and to make immediate impact with their close circles um, and then the next thing that we're really honing in on is providing a safe space for youth voices um, in so many other places on the internet you know young people are either um, pushed out or they are let in with a lot of kind of dangerous um, other figures and agents. Uh, we want to provide a place where young people can feel comfortable to tell their stories, can talk to one another, can be able to engage in this conversation in a very meaningful and safe way. And how we're doing that is we're working on building out internal programming and an online community where people really feel empowered to have conversations, to rethink tech and to share their experiences. So those are the two major directions we're going in right now. Um, and, you know, I will say for myself, I'm a political science major, so I'm always very interested in what's happening and what's moving. Um, I've been tracking COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, um, and just for me, I'm going to continue to see how I can play an active role in passing and pushing legislation that I think will make an impact for uh, my generation and the generations to come. Emma Lemke, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great to have you. Thanks for all the, the great work. It's really impressive. We're, we're all fans here, and, and uh, you know, best of luck to you. Well, thank you all for having me. Before we go, we wanted to share a special interview clip of four young people who are using the Internet to change the world. Last April, we hosted a hackathon titled the 5G for Change Hackathon to challenge our community to envision how they could change the world using 5G technology. We received submissions from over 100 teams and picked five to pitch their ideas in person to win a cash prize. In this next interview, I spoke with two members of Frame Perfect, the winning team. After meeting at the University of Guyana, Shamari and Malik Williams decided to tackle illegal logging in Guyana's rainforest by using AI-powered sound monitoring devices. Their hope is to have these devices alert rangers when logging is taking place. What were you trying to to achieve? So the project that we proposed was a project that was aimed at helping the natural environment in Guyana and around the world through forest preservation. What we proposed at the Web Awards was a comprehensive forest monitoring solution that combined listening devices along with AI and software to create a solution that we believed would manage 
deforestation in a elegant way. You know, how is the technology and how is the use of 5G um, going to combat deforestation in Guyana? So one of the things that we came to note was that if we were able to identify instances of deforestation happening, because a large percentage of deforestation came from illegal logging activities, that we could significantly reduce the rates of deforestation within the country. So, you know, with the advent of 5G and other technologies that allow the passing of large amounts of data over long distances really quickly, what we wanted to do was improve the existing systems that monitor the forest. So there are a lot of different solutions out there that were aimed at these things that had satellite imagery, but that was an after the fact kind of thing. And there were things that existed within Guyana, like using drones to go out and look at the area, but that was also an after the fact kind of thing. So what we wanted to do was create a solution that could inform stakeholders in real time in a safe way and in addition to it being safe it also involved all of the stakeholders in the process so to be very specific what we aimed to do was to place listening devices in the forest connected to ai that would listen for sounds that indicated illegal logging was happening and pass that information on to a software system that would then direct drones out into the area to take a look at the area and pass the information on to those villages that occupy the areas within the forest. So one of the things that we had mentioned in our presentation, Guyana is a very special place in the fact that a lot of our population, I think about 10% or so, actually lives in the forest. So in our country, the idea of bringing internet and connectivity to the hinterland region, as we call it, is not something that is, you know, bewildering. Because there are communities in those areas that need to be served. We knew that if we equipped those communities with the right technology, they would be very incentivized to protect the forest. And of course, our country is also incentivized to protect the forest because of climate change and other issues around the world. So that's what we were trying to propose at the Webby Awards and what ultimately won us the Webby Award in that hackathon. And when you were saying earlier, after the fact, you mean sort of the, the satellite solutions and some of the drone solutions that maybe already exist or that people use that essentially that it's, it, those are good for discovering where deforestation has taken place, but they're not necessarily good for stopping deforestation or, or illegal logging in, in the moment. Is that what you meant? Yeah, that's exactly it. So when it comes to satellite imaging, you can literally see an area that has been completely deforested, you know, through the satellite imagery. Of course, you can't see the area until it already happened. And you know, with the drones, it's not a continuous monitoring thing because the drones have low flight times. So what we wanted to do was to bring in other technologies and combine them together in a way that would aid and cover the bases that the drones were missing because they could only fly around the area for about 30 to 20 minutes. Uh, and of course, it's a very large area. So we wanted to get information that allow us to pinpoint, you know, generally where the exact deforestation is happening at the exact time so that the drone could then check it out without having to continuously monitor the entire area. So that's what we were aiming to improve on by looking into the literature of some monitoring and combining it with what was present there down in Guyana. Give me a sense of the the nature of the deforestation and in the in the illegal logging like the big organizations that are logging to try and sell the wood somewhere besides guiana is it is it local local tribes or local people using it to you know for heat and for fuel because there's not enough heat or fuel like what's the why are people trying to deforest the land okay so that that is a pretty cool question because a lot of Guiana is covered with forests. I believe like 70 to 75% of Guiana is actually covered in forests. And the government owns a large section of that uh, of the forest itself. 
And within their ownership, so the communities like my brother had mentioned that live there, they have access to the forest for the stuff that they would uh, use for fuel and, and so on. However, Guyana, because it's covered with forest, we have unique specimen of wood and trees that would produce wood or whatever. So it's a very profitable, profitable thing to do. So if you are able to get the wood, you're able to go out there and sell it. And that is why it's it's being illegally uh, illegally logged. As well as there are some other activities, because it's, it's not just uh, illegal logging, that is the problem, it's illegal deforestation. So you can burn long patches of the forest for whatever reasons they may, they may be. But the true and most pressing one is about illegal logging, which they use to sell the wood. Congratulations to Shamari, Malik, and the entire Frame Perfect team. What an incredible project. And thanks again to Emma Lemke for stopping by the studio. If you're interested in staying up to date with Log Off, Emma's movement, it's Log Off underscore movement on Instagram. And you can follow Emma's work on Twitter at Emma Lemke, E-M-M-A-L-E-M-B-K-E. For more information about the Webby Awards, please visit us at webbyawards.com or find us on social platforms at the Webby Awards. If you like our podcast, we'd be so grateful if you take a moment to give us a rating or review wherever you listen to them. It really helps other listeners find the show. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our editor is Kate Mishkin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Our writer is Mahi Sugebo. Our producer is Cecilia Betzel. Music is Poddington Bear. Webby Managing Director is Ciel Vanderveen. Claire Graves is our president. And I'm your host, David Michelle Davies. And this is the Webby Podcast. 